Good morning, everybody. <laughs> For the two of you that are left after the youth group walks out of here, welcome. Uh, I am extremely grateful to be here with you guys today. This is, as Mike had mentioned, but is absolutely so true. When you have the opportunity to teach, 99 times out of 100, you're the one getting the most out of it. So I'm just very grateful because the Lord is good. And uh, yeah, I had a really great time this week studying. So um, my name is Anthony Fulmer. For those of you who don't know me, I'm not Pastor Dan. Pastor Dan is still in Israel. Uh, He gets home this week. So you'll be seeing him next Sunday if you come back, if I haven't scared you off by then. And so um, the... When he asked me to teach, uh, he knew he was going to be gone for two weeks, and I knew that Dave was going to teach before me. So for those of you who were here last week, Dave Shipley taught. And we had a really interesting conversation, Pastor Dan and I, because I said to myself, well, I was talking to him, and I said, well, maybe I should touch base with Dave and see what he's teaching about, just so I don't end up picking the same thing, and we end up teaching the same thing. And Pastor Dad said something pretty interesting to me. He said, you know, Anthony, if uh, two men completely independently from one another under prayerful guidance from God are led to teach the exact same thing out of all of Scripture, then both of those men should teach that thing. That did not happen. So just <laughs> in case anybody was curious, uh, yeah, no, I... But I will say, so Dave taught on surrender last week, and what we will be looking at today uh, dovetails very well with surrender. We're going to be looking at anxiety today. And as we all know, ultimately the root of anxiety is an unwillingness to surrender your will to God, right? So the reason that I chose to teach on anxiety is very simple, because God is teaching me about anxiety, Right, uh, And I think we would all agree that there are a lot of reasons to potentially be anxious right now. In a geopolitical sense, you've got the continuing war between Russia and Ukraine, but now we're getting into winter, and you see that Russia is perfectly willing to use the gas that basically heats all of Europe as a political lever And so you've got Europe wondering, what does winter look like for us if Russia decides to turn off the gas that feeds us? Um, You also have, over in China over the last few years, they've begun really asserting themselves on a global stage, and we're finding out pretty quickly that it's not exactly positive in a lot of ways. And so they're flexing their muscle, and it doesn't look like it's actually good for a lot of people. We also have a lot of economic uncertainty, both domestically and in the world. Uh, We've got a debate going on right now in our country about whether we're in a recession or not, right? We've met the traditional definition for recession, two quarters of shrunken GDP growth, negative GDP growth. But at the other hand, we just had a jobs report a week ago that said our economy added 330,000 jobs last month. So what do we do with that? And then obviously we have seen domestically uh, spending that's really unprecedented 
40-year high inflation, and we're kind of trying to get our handle on that and figure out what does that look like for me when my budget was already really tight. But maybe you're not as geopolitically minded. Everything's a little more domestic for you. So maybe the things that are causing your anxiety are things like a broken relationship or tension between you and your spouse or one of your children, something that's causing just a lot of chaos and pain in your life. Or maybe it's something like personal financial circumstances. Maybe for you, the recession did happen and you're being negatively impacted by financial things and you're just not even sure how you're going to pay your bills next month. Or maybe even a negative health diagnosis for you or maybe somebody you love and you're still trying to figure out what does this mean for us? How do we adjust our lives to something like this? So whatever it is for you, the fact remains that the world really provides endless reasons for us to be worried and to be anxious. So God has been teaching me about anxiety primarily because I'm an anxious person, just naturally. I remember very vividly this week, in fact, which I don't know if you guys are interested in how I prepare a lesson, but initially I will study, read and study, and then just anything that comes to mind as I'm praying or reading, studying, I just write it down. I don't care about where it belongs. If it's in order, I just go, and I just make notes and notes. And then eventually I go through those notes, and I try to turn it into something that makes sense, which you guys will find out very soon if I've done that or not. But I remember very vividly Monday. I'm sitting there looking at the notes that I'd prepared, right? Because it's time this week to like really start putting it together. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I got a lot going on this week. When am I going to find the time to do this? And even if I could find the time, like, it's a normal work week and just some days you just come home from work and you feel like you've been wrung out like a dish rag. And you're like, so even if I could find the time, where am I going to find the energy? And there was just this one moment as I'm sitting here where God gave me, blessed me with like this perfect sort of clarity in that moment that I am sitting here worrying about a message that I'm preparing to try to teach people about worry. And the absurdity of it just made me laugh. And I was able in that moment to really give it over to God. And it was just peace after that. I've never, literally never felt more peaceful about a message than I have for this because it was just such a blessing that God gave me. Like, you, duh. if you're going to be worrying about anything, this is definitely the wrong time to do it. So. so, today we're going to be looking at Matthew 6. We're going to start in verse 25. We're going to continue to 34 at the end of the chapter. So um, why don't we turn there? I'm going to read, and then I'll pray for us so we can get started, okay? All right. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, 
For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Father, we just come before you right now, just grateful to you for the promises that are in your word, that you promise to bear our burdens for us, Lord, that you promise that you provide for us. And we just thank you for these things that we can really rest in, Lord. And so just help us just in our daily lives, Lord, as we encounter many things that we're not planning, that are not pleasant. Lord, just help us to remember in those times, those dark times, that you are there, you are with us, that you provide, Lord, that ultimately you strengthen us, you'll get us through. We just thank you, Lord, that we have these from you, Lord. We just ask you for your presence in this place right now. We ask, Lord, for your wisdom that we can apply what you'd have for us to our hearts so that we can hear and obey. We just thank you. We just praise you, and we just ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, it is September in an election year. So I'm assuming that all of you who still listen to normal radio or terrestrial TV are really enjoying the constant deluge of political ads that you're being forced to listen to during this time of your lives. One of the things that I've noticed is almost without exception, political ads come in two flavors. One, if you don't vote for me, the world you know will become an apocalyptic wasteland that you will never recover from. Or two, if you vote for my opponent, the worst things imaginable that you could ever conceive of will happen to everybody you love. It is almost, is such a stereotype, it's almost not even worth mentioning. So the question remains, why do they do it? Well, because they have a very powerful effect on our psyche, right? In a word, they work. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't spend all that money if it didn't work. There was actually a recent Pew poll that I found that showed how much they work because an increasing share of people from both of the major political parties ascribe things like closed-minded, dishonest, immoral, unintelligent, and lazy to members of the opposite political party. Almost none of them were under 50%, and some of them got as high as 80%. So all this negativity is doing wonders for our sense of togetherness and love for one another. 
But that's the, how the world system works. Kings and other leaders throughout history have used the anxiety of their people as a powerful tool to achieve order or to secure their, the power of their kingdom. Um, to put another way, they secure their thrones on the worries of their people. Because when people are fearful or anxious about their life, then perhaps they're going to be a little more likely or willing to do the government's bidding or to give their politicians a little something that they need, a little bit of power in order to get what they need from the government. Anxiety keeps people in their place. Or put another way, fear makes the monarchy firm. And I think most recently all of us have experienced some shade of this with regards to COVID and the lockdown situation. And I don't think it particularly matters where you fall on that spectrum of how much lockdown or how little lockdown you thought was appropriate. I think it is fair to say that the, in communities where people were more concerned about getting COVID or spreading it, they were willing to give the government more power to fight it more onerous measures to try to keep people safe. I think that's fair to say. So let's contrast that to Jesus then, because that's how the world operates. So how does Jesus operate? Well, one of the greatest things about Christ as our king is that he actually doesn't want you to be anxious. Uh, God doesn't need to exalt himself upon his people's anxieties. Um, He doesn't secure his kingdom by keeping his people anxious. In fact, he exalts his power and his superiority over us by being the one who can free us from our anxieties. That's how God exalts himself above his people. Because everybody gets anxious. It's a completely normal part of life. Even even after everything, just sitting in worship, and knowing I'm going to have to come up here in a couple minutes and start talking. There's that little butterfly in your stomach where you're like, okay, I think I'm ready, but still sort of a little bit of that coming on. But it should be encouraging to us that while everybody gets anxious, hopefully you know that God's will is that you should feel peace, you should feel confidence, you should feel joy, you should feel serenity. Those are all things that God wills for you in your life. He doesn't want you to be anxious. And why? Ultimately, why? Because faith and worry are mutually exclusive concepts. There is no such thing in the church as a faithful worrier. They they occupy the same part of your heart, right? The more faith you have, the less worry you have. The more worry you have, the less faith you have. And as we know from Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's not just, by the way, that God doesn't want us to be anxious and that he commands us not to be. It's that he also gives us a lot of great reasons why we shouldn't be. And that's really the honest part of that. I think it's incredibly kind the way that God interacts with us. He has every right to command us and we have every duty to obey him. But that's not how God operates, is it? He's incredibly kind. He meets us where we are. Um, I remember when I was becoming a parent, right? So my wife was pregnant with our first child, and I was just sort of like, you know, getting my game plan ready for how am I going to be a parent. And 
I don't know how many of you parents can relate to this, but the first thing I thought of was like, what are all the mistakes my parents made? Because I am not repeating those. Uh, In particular, the one thing that I always hated so much that my dad would do is he would tell me something. I would go, okay, well, why? And he'd go, because I said so. And so I vowed, I vowed I wouldn't be the parent that said, because I said so. Now, as a parent, now I realize that really that why was like the 15th why in a row. And so it becomes much more tempting after 15 whys to just go, okay, because I said so, okay, just chill. But in that moment, that was how, um, that, was, that was the vow that I made to myself. And really, God could be that parent if he wanted to. He could be the because I said so God. But that is not how he deals with us at all. He's extraordinarily kind and gentle with us. And so here in this section of scripture that we just read, Jesus is persuading us. He's reasoning with us. And hopefully, instead of just commanding us to not be anxious, he's trying to show us really why it's so pointless, why it's not in our best interest and what we're losing out on when we really partake in it. So he gives us what I eight arguments, okay, in this section of scripture. We're going to go through them one by one. The very first one is in verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more, about, more than clothing? So life is more than food and the body is more than clothing, right? This is opening point. So let's consider what would we lose in our lives if immediately we had no food and no clothing? First off, I wouldn't be here if I didn't have any clothing, but that's completely beside the point. But break it down. What would we lose? First, we would lose quite a bit of pleasure and comfort, right? Eating a good meal is an awesome experience. It's a very pleasurable experience. It's an experience that I'm a big fan of, if you couldn't tell already. Um, Second, losing all of your food and clothing, you would lose the approval of men. Uh, I had somebody remark to me today that they were surprised to see me in pants, because if you do see me wandering around here in the church, typically, unless it's mid-December, I'm in shorts. I like it. I don't like wearing pants. But I'm up here teaching, and I don't want to be any more of a distraction than I absolutely have to be to come up here and teach. So I put on pants, and I dress the part, right? So if I didn't have clothes, I would lose the approval of men. And lastly, and obviously the most obvious one, your life would be cut short. You would starve to death. Or if it was the middle of winter and you had no clothes, you would be exposed to terrible weather and freeze to death. So what Jesus is saying here is that in these moments when we're anxious about these things, we are focused on the lesser parts of life and ignoring the better parts of life. Because we were not given life primarily for physical pleasure, but for something greater, which is delight in God. We were not given life for the approval of man. We were given it for the approval of God. And then lastly, even life is not about maximizing your time on this planet even. God has given you 
a purpose. He's given you life for his purposes. And when that purpose is over, whether you be 90 or 30, it's time to come home. So even then, even the length of your life is not what life is about. Food and clothing cannot provide these greater things. And that's what Christ is trying to remind us of here. The next argument he makes is in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? The relationship that you have with God is quite a bit different than the relationship that that bird has with God. Um, God is that bird's creator. You are God's child. And there is a huge difference in what that relationship means. Jesus is making an argument contrasting the lesser to the greater here. What he's basically saying is if God, who is merely the creator of this bird, still provides everything this bird needs to survive, how much more will he provide to you who is his child? Birds can't plan ahead, typically. They have no worries about their provision. So how much less we, who God has endowed with the reason to plan ahead and with these things. He says, in reference to the birds, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. That's something that we do. And why do we do that a lot of the time? What is at least some of our motivation? I think if we're honest with ourselves, some of the motivation for us to do those kind of things is fear of the future. Because we don't know. We had a great harvest this year. What happens next year? We don't know. Now, there's nothing wrong, obviously, with being a good steward of what God gives you. What you have to worry about in your own personal life is where is that line between I'm being a good steward and I'm hoarding out of fear? Like, where is that? If you opened your garage and there was 700 kilos of toilet paper in there about mid-2020, I feel like you might have crossed the line from necessity to fear, but, you know... We all enjoyed those times, I'm sure. So the other main difference between us and the birds is that we have the capacity to honor God with our faith. Birds don't have faith, right? We do. All right, next argument in verse 27 and probably the most practical one in this section of scripture. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you don't believe any other reason that Jesus gives you, or you're sort of like on the fence about some of these things, listen to this. Uh, Why bother worrying when it doesn't work anyway? Like if you could say like truly, honestly, you know, Worrying about that problem really helped me fix it. It was so great. I'm so glad I spent sleepless nights worrying about this thing that was going to happen because it absolutely helped me fix it. 
I think you might have some sort of justification for worry. But what Jesus is saying here is that worry does nothing for you. It doesn't help in any way. No matter what problem or situation is causing you anxiety, worrying is not going to help you fix it. All it's going to do is make you miserable while you are trying to fix it. Are any of you guys familiar with the first law of holes? No? Okay, let me tell you the first law of holes. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And then there's a second law of holes, which is once you've stopped digging, you are still in a hole. And that's all I can say about this verse. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, guys. It doesn't help. Continuing to dig will never help you get out of that hole. His next argument starts in verse 28 and goes through 30. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the, li- consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The interesting thing is lilies only bloom about two or three weeks a year, and yet they're incredible. Have you guys ever seen like really fine silk under a microscope? It looks like burlap. The the most amazing thread that we create for ourselves when examined under closer magnification just looks awful. It's a mess. It doesn't look soft at all. But contrast that with a flower. You put a flower under a microscope and you look at it. It's beautiful. It's structured. It's fantastic all the way down. So you have this God here who loves adorning things because as any of us who have ever been out in nature know Nature is a beautiful, amazing, wonderful place. We have a creative God who loves beauty and is very free about giving it in the world. So if God's delight in adorning things expresses itself by him adorning the grass, which is meaningless, it's here today, it's in the oven tomorrow, is there not a high chance that his delight in adorning things will be expressed in the way that he adorns his children, who he loves with his whole heart? And some of you might say to me, well, that's a, that's a nice argument to make, but what about all those Christians who are desperately poor, living in third world countries and the like? They don't, God doesn't really adorn them very well. And I would say that that is not a great argument for this reason. Ultimately, God's provision for his people, he adorns his people in a way that's appropriate for the work that he has for you. And while some aren't really provided with what we would consider to be an amazing wardrobe, God gives his people what they need to do the work he's appointed them to do. Which, as an example, do you think would be better for a construction worker to have? A pair of $900 leather Gucci loafers or a $100 pair of steel-toed boots? Obviously, there is a correct answer to this. It is steel-toed boots. 
but the way that I work in my brain, even as I'm out here, up here making this argument to you, I say to myself, well, the $900 Gucci loafers, because you could sell those and buy nine pair of steel-toed boots. No problem. But that is not the correct answer, so please do not be like me. That is... Ultimately, we should not measure the perfection of God's provision by any other standard than is this person able to fulfill the calling of God in their life by what God has provided for them? And the answer to that is always yes. And besides, as far as our wardrobe is concerned, who cares? Even the poorest Christian, when they die and they meet the Lord in eternity, there is a robe of glory waiting for them that will surpass anything they could get here. So what does it even matter? Next, the next two arguments Christ makes are in in verse 32, the first one. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Another pretty straightforward argument. In fact, the, the word seek that's used here in this translation, other translations say eagerly seek, but the Greek really means to seek after something with all of your might. This is literally the thing that they are worried about in their lives. And so the argument's pretty straightforward. Anxiety about the world and about the things of the world puts you on the same level as an unbeliever, and that should not be. The things that make the Gentiles very happy are not the things that make believers very happy, typically. The things that make the Gentiles anxious or upset should not be the things that make us anxious or upset because we have a completely different perspective on life and the afterlife. And so that should really be coloring the way that we react to things. The next argument's the other half of this verse. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God knows already. And that's really, I think, part of the root of our anxiety because whether or not we're willing to admit this openly, it always comes down to one of three things. One, God is not there. There is nobody there to help you. Or maybe, number two, he is there, but he doesn't care. He's not concerned about what's going on in your life. He's got bigger things to worry about. He doesn't care that you lost your job. He's got other things going on. Or three, he is there, he does care, but he doesn't have the power to help you. There's nothing he can do to actually fix this problem. So that's ultimately what worry boils down to, one of those three things. Is there any greater sin for a believer than to mistrust the love of God for us? I don't know. His seventh argument's in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Very simple and straightforward. Seeking his kingdom, what does that mean? It means to acknowledge him as king in a given situation. So something awful happens. And in that moment, you go, God, you are in control of this moment. Whatever terrible calamity is going on in my life, ultimately, you are the one who controls it. 
You are the one who will get me through it. And then secondly, to rest in his power, to be able to be willing to let go of that thing that is driving you to worry because you know God will handle it. You know he can handle it. You know he wants to handle it. And you know he will handle it. So that is seeking first. It is a strange flaw in human character that we are so determined to hang on to these things that God has sworn to us he will carry on our behalf if we will give them to him. We still have, we have these promises and yet we're still so determined to hang on to them. And his last argument is in verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this verse I appreciate especially because as a professional worrier, um, sometimes things are going so well for you in any given moment that you really got to start reaching into the future to find things to really get jazzed up about. Uh, It feels almost like an addiction at times, how worried you are. This is something that has happened to me several times in the last, well, thank the Lord, not recently, but like years ago. When I was first married, um, I was probably like maybe five years into my marriage. And I remember having a moment in my house. I was by myself. Um, I think Cindy had taken the kids and she was doing something in Boise or whatever. And I was sitting there just reflecting on my life and just going, Lord, it is so amazing. I, if you know anything about my background, the life that I have is not the life I would have expected for myself based on how I grew up. And I was just reflecting on what the Lord had really brought me through and what he had given me. He provided me a wife that I love, kids that are just amazing, and just that, that part of you that you didn't know you were missing until you have kids. And I was just so happy in that moment. And then I had that next thought, which was, I wonder what's going to happen that's going to screw that up for me. Uh, are my, is Cindy, while well, she's in Boise, going to get T-boned in some intersection? Are we going to have a terrible health diagnosis? Am I going to lose my job? Or are we going to be out on... Like, the insanity of taking a moment where you're just feeling grateful to God for what he's done for you and then twisting it into a way to basically say, God, you're not, you know, this is good, but I don't know what you're going to do to drop the other shoe on me, but I'm keeping an eye out for it. So we are sometimes addicted to worry, it feels like. But Christ says here very clearly, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. God gives each day its portion, its portion of good and its portion of bad. And he gives you that provision to bear today's problems only. If you start looking for tomorrow's problems and try to deal with those early, guess what? You're not going to have what you need from God to do that because he only gives you what you need for today. I'm going to quickly jump over to Lamentations 3, 22, 23. 
through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They are new every morning. There's no point in which God says to you when you're going through a tough time and you're dealing with a lot, and he goes, you know, I really helped you yesterday. I did a lot for you yesterday. Today, I'm just gonna take a break. You know, you're on your own for this one. That's not how God works. Every day, his mercies are new. He gives you everything you need to face every single day, but he gives you nothing more than that. So if you try to bring forward tomorrow's problems today, you're gonna find that you're not able to handle all of that. To anticipate trouble is to double it because it's not only causing you grief now, it's gonna cause you grief when you actually have to deal with it. And as ironically we've seen or heard all the studies, we know what worry does to you. It is if you're an alcoholic or a worry wart, those things will do about the same thing to your body over enough time, right? They will destroy you. So Christ doesn't want us to be anxious. He provides for us what we need. And he wants us to really just give those worries over to him. So I've got three, I guess, takeaways. Try to distill what we've talked about into three kind of bullet points. So as we have the worship team head back up, I'll go over them very quickly. Key takeaway number one, if God gave you your life, and if he gave it to you to complete his own purposes, if we can both, if we can all agree that those two things are true, God gave you your life, and he gave it to you to complete his own purposes, will he not also sustain that life? If he says, I need you to do these things, is he not going to give you what you need to do that? Yes. He's already given you the wonderful gift of life. If you are a believer, he's given you the greatest gift of forgiveness and eternal life. So why wouldn't he then withhold you the lesser gifts of food and clothing or whatever you lack in those moments of worry? Second takeaway. God not only instructs us to abandon our anxiety, but he enables us to do it. He is not only the one telling us to give it up, but he's the one that enables us to actually do it. So, and the last one, remember the better thing. We're gonna look really quickly at Luke chapter 10. Close out our time together. Very famous story. All your kids probably heard it in Sunday school or will. I'll read it here. Now it happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. 
So if I could just encourage you guys to anything, it would be to choose that good part. Remember the better thing that God has for us above and beyond the circumstances causing our anxiety. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you as jars of clay, Lord. We are nothing remarkable. We are nothing fantastic, and yet you love us. You pour yourself into us freely, Lord. You give us so many wonderful and good things, and we just praise you for it. We just ask you to just help us to be faithful to you, Lord, to have faith in those moments, those tough moments in our lives when things are looking down, Lord, to just be able to rest in the fact, to be still and to know that you are God, Lord. Know that you have these things handled. Know that these things will be taken care of in a fashion that will bring you praise and glory with our amazement. And so, Lord, we just pray for our time this week. Lord, we just ask you to please be with us throughout this week. And we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be together as your people. And we just say these things in Christ's name. Amen.